Transformers oh. are a type of machine learning model which learn to encode their input data by learning how each part of that data relates to the entire input. Transformers are a computationally efficient way to encode data, and they can be trained without labels on a large amount of data that is scraped from the web, for example. You could conceivably have a machine, a deep learning transformer model, try to make money by mm. generating art that it could sell as NFTs and then use those uh, funds as a way to pay for its like server costs. Hey, this is Shree. And this is Will. Welcome to the Technium, where we talk about the edge of technology and what we can build with it. An optimistic look at the road ahead. Hey, Will, how's it going? Hey, Shree, how's it going? It's going all right on this end. How was your week? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. I actually, it's been, it's been snowing a ton, so this is pretty fun. And I stocked up right before the snowstorm and got uh, some interesting drinks. I went to H Mart. Wow. I got this thing i actually don't even know what it says or what the name is but the translation at the back is uh barley flavored soda so that's what i'm drinking today yeah that uh, could be good because like it's kind of like a roasted barley flavor that that might be good yeah i don't know it's it has a picture of a farmer holding some i'm guessing barley so i like barley yeah yeah yeah. well that's That's pretty cool so yeah (laughs) so this week i have something from Trader Joe's. It's a blue blueberry lavender almond beverage. And I have to say it, it it's good, but it tastes weird because lavender is almost perfumey to me. So it seems like you're ingesting perfume at the same time. So it's a little odd. Hmm. That is a, a pretty strange. Yeah. I've never had any lavender flavored food. So lavender ice cream is pretty good if you've, if you've ever had it. Oh, I should try that sometime. Yes. So what are we talking about this week? So this week, we are talking about transformers. Transformers are a type of machine learning model which learn to encode their input data by learning how each part of that data relates to the entire input. Transformers are a computationally efficient way to encode data, and they can be trained without labels on a large amount of data that is scraped from the web, for example. Transformer models have been very revolutionary in enabling computers to do tasks that were previously thought to be incredibly difficult, such as generating realistic natural language and even writing computer code. Wow. Yeah. So I was looking at deep learning and machine learning way back. I don't know when, like that must've been like five, six years ago. And that was when convolutional neural networks were all the rage and RNNs had only started to kind of come into the consciousness of a lot of uh, computer scientists. And then since then I was just like, well, Maybe I need to go in a different direction for X, Y, and Z reasons. So I completely miss Transformers. And apparently this thing is just subsuming everything else. Like it has just like everything that I learned is basically outdated and none of it matters because Transformers are the thing. Yeah, it, it's, you know, it's it's kind of crazy. I sort of started working in the space of, of natural language processing around 2017. And mm-hmm. um, 2017 was when... The this paper, paper came out. The, yeah. that came out, yeah, attention is all you need, which introduced the transformer. And since then, it's just been nonstop, like paper after paper, discovering new ways that this uh, type of machine learning model, this architecture, can be used. And uh, it's it's blown every other technique out of the water. I've worked on teams where they were using all types of very custom built techniques, and then somebody was like, like. Why don't we just try some transformer-based model? And it does way better than what people had been working on for years. And so that's that's how revolutionary these things have been. Yeah, I mean, like when 
when I was learning about convolutional neural networks, I was like, oh, it can learn features. Also, at the same time, you're training the thing. Like, woe to the graduate students of the last 20 years in computer <laughs> right. vision, wasting their lives just designing custom, like, feature recognition parts to, like, input into, like, whatever machine learning thing. Like, you could just train it end-to-end -end now. But, yep. I mean... I guess the, the laughs on me because now like convolutional neural networks uh, have their weaknesses and all you need are transformers. So we're going to talk about like, why is it that transformers had such a big impact on deep learning and neural networks and uh, like kind of what, what were the main big ideas that were in there? And then mm -hmm. like what people use it for nowadays and what you could use it for in the future. And then maybe we can talk about whether this is the end all be all, or maybe there's something else that would blow transformers <laughs> out, out of the water. Cause it's not a technium podcast uh, unless we speculate without any bearing whatsoever with no <laughs> accountability. So. Yes, exactly. So, so let's dive into it. Yeah. I think, you know, um, I think a caveat is that we are not a sort of tutorial. A lot of the stuff is very math heavy in its theory. Mm -hmm. And even the best explanations for a working programmer are going to be very visual in nature. And so we're going to reference out to some other resources in the show notes. But the, the big idea uh, that you do need to know in order to understand what transformers are is that machine learning models work on, on math. They work on processing vectors as input and uh, they output vectors as well. And so uh, machine learning models, deep learning models specifically, are basically huge piles of matrices uh, stacked on top of each other. And, and so that's how all of these types of, uh, of things work. And so traditionally, when you're building a deep learning model, you, you need to match the architecture of your deep learning model with the kind of shape of the matrices that you are feeding into it. So like you'd mentioned, Will, there were you know, lots of early advances in image processing, computer vision, by taking images and treating them as two-dimensional inputs of mm -hmm. intensity and color, which they are, right? Like if you think of a, an a image, it is a grid of colored pixels. And uh, the original way of, of treating uh, images and, uh, using deep learning is to scan them in two dimensions and chunk them up into little pieces and run some type of filters and matrices over them and make use of the fact that they are a two-dimensional structure. And then coming to text, text is uh, treated as a sequential input because if you have a sentence, a sentence is one word after another. It's a sequence of words, for example. And so in order to process that type of input, people were using RNNs uh, or recurrent neural networks, which read each token one at a time and, uh, and process them sequentially, as you might do if you were reading a sentence as a human. So that's sort of the lay of the land. Yeah, that, that's only natural because like in image and image processing, oftentimes for filters, you, you have what's called a kernel and it's like a sliding window. You slide over the image and that's how you uh, transform it in some way. And it, uh, it's not a far leap from what people were already doing. It's just that they did it at every layer. And so I can see how that's the case. And then when you look at text, you're like, oh, we read from left to right. And obviously it seems like a sequence. So then you would naturally try to look for solutions that are conducive to a sequential type of uh, processing because in images we i think it, with convolutional neural networks there's no notion of memory i, I think right like it, it's mm. not like it's something that remembers from one image to another essentially you're training like a pure function whereas for t the sequential input these neural network architectures need to maintain some sort of state 
as was thought to to kind of process things so that you can relate one part of the text to another part of the text and so that that's that's why these things kind of originated with with those sort of techniques yeah exactly so so people were just using the natural shape of the input and saying we're going to make uh, a neural network architecture which matches that in some some intuitive way and that was all fine especially in the image processing world because like you had mentioned that there isn't this sense of maintaining some state or memory while you're processing uh, processing an image the the convolutional neural ne neural networks were sufficiently fast and parallelizable so that in the computer vision community they were actually making incredible gains as gpus got faster as uh, they were able to do better optimization techniques there was this explosive growth in the state of the art and and the performance on their tasks that they were trying to do but at the same time the natural language processing community the nlp community was sort of hindered by the sequential nature of rnns mm -hmm. because the thing is that these deep learning models run on graphics processing units, GPUs, that are really good at parallel uh, computation, but they are slow, or you're not taking advantage of their capacity if you're doing sequential comp computation. And that's what people were doing with RNNs. And so uh, RNNs being represents recurrent, uh, rec recurrent neural networks, for those of you that yes. want to search for it, yeah. <laughs> yes. So that's where the transformer comes in. The transformer is a way to basically process the input, a sequential input, by looking at it all at once. And so that's a little bit hand-wavy, but transformers use what's called a self-attention mechanism, uh, which means that rather than processing one word at a time, it takes the entire sequence as an input and then uses what's called an attention mechanism to focus what word it's looking at in order to model the relationship between the different parts of the input or the different words in a sentence, for example. And so that basically meant that rather than having a, a loop, you could actually just process all of its input all at once. And, and that was a huge speed up just in terms of processing time. And, and there are other benefits beyond processing time, but if that was the only thing it contributed, it actually would have been uh, revolutionary in and of itself. Right. And so to re reiterate, one of the things about text processing is that people conceived of it as something that you needed to do sequentially because we conceived of it as reading text words left to right. And then so that means the RNN and like the LSTM, the long short-term or memory, memory like, cons yeah. like constructions are always such that if you're trying to calculate the nth token with the the uh, recurrent neural network, the RNN, then you needed the n minus one result from the previous token. That means that you need to uh, process them all sequentially. There wasn't a way in that architecture to parallelize it at all because you needed yeah. the previous step. And yes. what and the reason why they wanted this sort of stuff chained was that if you have a word it's likely referring to not just the words that are next to it but something further on like for example you have a pronoun it and it might refer to something that is like five six seven words away and without this kind of state memory with the sequential model there wasn't previously a way to give the neural network an ability to relate these two things that were distance far apart but with the self-attention mechanism, it gave people the ability to much more easily relate two things that are far apart, and you could learn them in parallel. And so these were kind of a, you can have your cake and eat it too sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's really well put. So 
in addition to the performance implications of using self-attention to process the entire input at once rather than using a loop, transformers also solve the problem of the fact that when you're processing a very long input sentence, you need to keep track of all of the tokens that you've seen so far. And if you have a very long sentence, then you might forget, or by when I say you, I mean the machine learning model might forget what it's seen earlier on. And even though that information is is potentially useful in, in let's say, classifying a sentence. So if you have a spam classifier and it's classifying a very long email, then it, this becomes a problem because the longer the email gets, the less able it is to consider the the tokens, the words, at the, at the beginning of the sentence, and rather it bases its decision on the tokens that it's seen more recently. And mm -hmm. that's not a desirable property. Ideally, you want it to be able to consider the entirety of its input at once, regardless of how long that input is. And so transformers and the self-attention mechanism solve that problem by basically just keeping the entire input in memory and rather than forcing the machine learning model to somehow be able to remember what it's seen before it just says just look at the entire input and then focus on the parts that that you want to yeah and then the reason why it's called attention is it's a metaphor to what we perceive humans do when we look at a part of an image or part of a sentence like we're focused on that part of the uh, sentence and how it relates to some meaning that we have in our head and similarly attention is effectively a series of weights and these weights are learned and so when you're processing a token how is that token related to i guess an embedding right that that we have in our head and embedding is just you could just call it meaning like it's a, a parameterized meaning in that is somewhere in some vectorized space in the machine learning's head i guess is one thing that you can say it yeah yeah so that's one that's one key difference that the transformers introduced was self-attention the other interesting thing that people don't talk as much about is that transformers are agnostic to the structure of their input and what i mean by this is that previously people were treating sentences as sequences of tokens and transformers said i don't know anything about sequences transformers just take all of their input as a huge set or a, a bag of, of inputs a bag of fragments mm -hmm. and so Transformers don't know anything about sequences. They don't know anything about grids of pixels. All of that is actually encoded by this, this other mechanism called position embeddings, which basically take all of the fragments of your input and then add a learnable position embedding, which allows a model to learn where something is. And so this is a, a little bit abstract. But mm -hmm. basically what this means is that it allows Transformers to generalize to all kinds of input that have different types of structure. And so this is one of the reasons why transformers increasingly are being used for things outside of sequences and in fact are taking over some of the computer vision community. Because transformers are agno agnostic to the structure of the input and the structure of the input can be learned through these position embeddings, now transformers can run over sequences, they can run over grids such as images, they can mm. potentially run, run over graphs and any other thing, as long as you can sort of encode it using these, these position embeddings. Are these positional embeddings, are they relative to everything else? Or are they some, I guess, like, they're, they're some sort of vectorized space that relates the position of one token versus all the other tokens, however you define position, right? And so in a yeah. text, it might be like distance to every other word or something like that? In Yeah, so people use different things, and there are lots of different techniques. Some people use a sine wave. There are 
other architectures where this position embedding is entirely learned. And so you actually don't say what, you don't impose any structure upon this and it just sort of learns the right thing. So there are, there are different ways to do it, but basically the idea is that rather than having the machine learning model know something about the position and treat right. things differently, it, it sort of learns that. Right, and so basically you're splitting up the functionality of the, like what we usually call embedding, you could say is the abstract meaning of a token, or like whether it's a word or like parts of, part of an image or something, versus its positional embedding, which is like how it relates to every other thing in the data that you're feeding it, right? And so these are two separate things now that you then merge together to be able to send through the the transformer architecture, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Transformers use self-attention, they use position embeddings, and uh, that makes them fast, it makes them agnostic to the structure of their input. They can take sort of any type of input. And so with that, it solved a huge set of problems for the NLP community, and that the underdogs really just uh, got a leg up on that, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, transformers, they they broke performance records, both in terms of the computational performance as well as the the performance on some of the key metrics and benchmarks. Yeah. And then there were a ton of follow-on papers to the transformer that were built on the transformer architecture where they used transformers as sort of a, a Lego building blocks that they stacked on top of each other and they added other uh, types of components to and these are names that people have probably heard so one of the follow-ons to the transformer was BERT. Uh, mm. BERT was one of the first natural language processing models that was pre-trained that the creators at uh, Google Brain basically trained BERT on this huge corpus of data I think it was Wikipedia or it might have also included the web data and you could just take BERT off the shelf and it would work great. So when you said it worked great, you mean that you can take BERT off the shelf, pre-trained model, and apply it to any number of different domains, and it would perform relatively well. Because before, to have one model trained in one scenario perform well in a different one was a difficult thing. Like, it, it was still relatively brittle, where you would train it specifically for something, you get great results, get your paper, people think that it's awesome, but if you take that same model and try to apply it somewhere else, like, it fell apart, right? And so this was... Yep. This was the surprising thing that BERT seemed to do pretty well across different domains, at least yeah. in NLP, right? Yes, in, in NLP. This was actually a very commonplace thing in computer vision where uh, there were some base models like AlexNet, VGG, things like that, which yeah. uh, worked off the shelf for many image processing tasks. But this uh -huh. was not the case for NLP tasks. Right, BERT was one of the first ones that brought that in. Uh -huh. And then, of course, the famous GPT family of models where GPT-2 was probably the first one that OpenAI published that, that had a lot of fanfare because it, it worked decently well. It, it appeared to work decently well. And then they continued onwards with GPT-3, where they just took the same exact architecture and they just said, we're going to stack more and more transformers on top right. of this thing. <laughs> Why and... don't we just pour gasoline on it? Gasoline being <laughs> lots of data. But yeah, like this architecture seems to work. Like let's let's see what it can do if we like turbocharge it. Yeah, so it turns out if you throw more transformers and more data on, on the problem, things just continue to get better. And so GPT-3 is a model, a transformer-based model, which is actually surprising in that it ends up learning things which make it a significant step change away from simply some of the simple NLP models before it. Specifically, GPT-3 has ingested so much data and basically learned all of the internet that now you can, you can simply get responses for a particular 
task simply by asking it to generate text that looks like that kind of output that you want. You don't even have to train it traditionally. You just say, here's a prompt, respond to this prompt, and it will, it will generate text that looks like that. So you can say, generate text in the style of Abraham Lincoln talking about machine learning. And it, it might actually do this. And, it, and it, so it ends up being significantly different than all of machine learning models before it in that it has a, a sort of generative capabilities that allow it to solve very generalized tasks. Yeah, it's, it's one of those, I guess, facts of innovation where if you make something quantitatively different to an order of magnitude, then it becomes quantitatively different. And that's exactly what you're saying here. Like if you make yeah. something 10 times faster, people will start using it for things that they never dared using it before. And that changes the nature of things. Like if cars or transportation got, or if cars made transportation 10 times as fast, I don't have to take a horse and buggy to go visit people. Then all of a sudden, like maybe there's a new market that comes up where you can have restaurants because you go out with your friends all the time. Not like I'm making something up, but that's yeah. that's effectively what you're saying. Yeah, and like I've tried GPT-3 and it's kind of amazing the types of things that you can generate. You can ask it to generate things for you as a way of looking something up. So like you can have fun with it, say like, you know, make a speech by or like you you can talk the housing crisis but in the style of chris rock or something like that right and yep. it'll like do its best to generate that for you but also like if you want the answer to something like what what are the like write me a paper on side effects in programming like it'll generate text that that might give you parts of answers and so it's up to you as a human to like filter it out but like it's it does amazingly well there and yeah. so i guess to your earlier point like it's surprising that you can just throw more data at this thing and stack it higher and higher and it does better because previous neural networks had a problem with this. Like you would have vanishing gradient problems if you just stack really deep. Like people tried deep neural networks before and it failed because they couldn't figure, well, they just couldn't figure out how to train the thing. It turns out we just need more data and like faster machines. So like what's the case with transformers that you can just throw data at it and just stack it higher and higher because that's surprising. So I think that the transformer builds on top of a lot of the learning that was happening in the computer vision community because it turns out that the same principle also worked for com for computer vision for CNNs. So CNNs got better and better by people saying, let's throw more layers on it. And uh, things got absurdly deep, like hundreds of layers deep neural networks. And performance just got better and better. And the way that they prevented these problems with, with training and with sort of numerical instability is that they they add a lot of mechanisms. These are these are sort of uninteresting, but you know some some things that I can name drop are like residual layers and uh, batch normalization. Batch normal. Oh, I see. Right, like right. So a, a lot of times it's like the actual mechanics in the neural network made the calculations unstable, and so taking the learnings from there, they just reapplied it to these. Yeah, exactly. So and, and it it turns out to work very very well and. You know, there's there's even a paper, the unreasonable effectiveness of of big data, uh, which sort of goes <laughs> into this. It predates a lot of this this deep learning stuff, but right. you know, the thesis is basically that don't be too smart in trying to encode right. lots of smart features. Use your human intuition and build better and better models. Like find a type of core model architecture that works. Stack it really deep. Throw lots of data at it, and it'll do better than than you think. And uh, for a long time, the this eluded the NLP community because they weren't able to find that 
that core building block uh-huh. that was computationally efficient to stack this high. Uh, and the transformer introduced that. And then all of the learnings that were available from the computer vision community, again, immediately translated. And then right. within the span of just a few years, the transformer was published in, in 2017. And since then, there has been incredible growth. Like this, it's yeah. only been you know, just over or four years. So uh, as an aside, two questions. One, do you know where the team that came up with the paper for attention, like, do you know where the inspiration came from at all as an aside? It's okay if you say no, but no, I no. I okay. Don't. All right. And then two, like, you know how DeepMind uh, made a lot of inroads into protein folding? Was it also using like a transformer like architecture or no? I actually don't know that either. Oh, okay. Probably just let's have to move, cut let's move on. Out. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, because w- one of the things is is just that they blew everybody in bio like the protein folding community out of the water. Like it's the first time I saw something where the the people in biochemistry was like, "There's no need for us to have a conference anymore because this is <laughs> solved." So. Yeah, yeah. Actually, by outsiders, no, like by people that have no idea, have never really studied the problem. Yeah, which is yeah. amazing. And so, anyways, yeah, it, no, it turns out that this is this is the direction that a lot of the machine learning uh, and deep learning is going. Is that you know the lesson is don't be too smart, yeah. uh, don't be too cute, just use simple stuff and uh, it'll sort of blow everything out of the water. Yeah, that didn't that come from Norvig or something like Peter Norvig? He was just saying just throw more data about. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, whatever. Anyways, yeah, yeah. let's move on. Let's move on. Cool. Yeah. So so transformers made a, a huge, huge splash, needless to say. And so what does that mean? What does it mean now that we're in this new Transformer world? I think it means a few things. One really, really interesting thing that people kind of sort of talk about, but I think is slept on, is the fact that Transformers are structure agnostic, mm-hmm. that they don't care if your input is a sequence, a grid, a graph, whatever. If you can somehow learn to uh, encode these positional uh, encodings, positional embeddings, mm-hmm. you can have a single type of machine learning model which can encode any type of data. Yeah. And this has actually been used in a new type of machine learning, which is called multimodal machine learning. We talked about this a little bit yeah. in uh, the Clip episode, Clip yeah. and Dali, uh-huh. where Clip learns to represent both images and text in a shared embedding space, which means yeah. that you can compare the similarity of a piece of text with a, with an image and say, does this text describe this image? And this is what we mean by multimodal. It's comparing two modalities or two types of media, in this case, images and text. And the transformer makes this really, really easy because you don't have one type of machine learning architecture that's suited for one type of data and then another that's suited for another type of data and then somehow merge these two and reconcile these two. You can just have it be transformers all the way. and this is very, very interesting because the world itself is sort of multimodal. The The concept of a, a cat, for example, can be represented visually. It can be represented with text. It can be represented by a video, a 3D mesh, whatever it is, it, uh, the sounds it makes. And so multimodal is kind of the future if you want to build a machine learning models that know more, more and more about the world, kind of give it, giving it more and more senses. Yeah, essentially, Transformers is the docker of the machine learning world or like the <laughs> internet protocol of the machine learning world, right? It's yeah. We've used this term before. It's the narrow waist, right? Like when you have like N things that got to match to M things, then you have this combinatorial explosion of like implementations you got to do. Like we can got to translate one to the other. But like if you have one common intermediate representation for any, 
any of these things that you have to translate m n of to the m of then it's it makes it a lot easier and that's effectively what transformers give us right and Mm -hmm. even more so that it's multimodal and one of the tweets that i saw our andrew andre kaparthi who is i think director at of ai at tesla now he talks about how this is a unifying force for people in machine learning because before he couldn't really read a lot of the other papers in other machine learning subfields but now that transformers are like subsuming everything else he's actually able to take techniques in other subfields of machine learning and apply to vision which is what he's doing with the driverless cars at tesla and it goes the other way around so there's a lot of cross-pollination that way because they have a intermediate representation that's available for them to use yeah totally and i imagine that even beyond the individual researchers being able to cross-pollinate ideas which shouldn't be understated by the way because it turns out that when when things are in sort of silos by by domain or by vertical then you know, progress is sort of unnecessarily hindered versus where when you have a world where people can freely take ideas and not just ideas, you can actually just take up take straight up transformers and apply them to all different kinds of things off the shelf. And yeah. so I think that's one really interesting idea. And I think that specifically in the case of Tesla and self-driving cars, I imagine that being able to have a, a common building block that is able to process all the different senses. If you think about self-driving cars, they need to mm. process vision in the case of a lidar enabled self-driving cars they have 3d point clouds they probably process audio as well as many many other things it it's probably nice to have a shared building block that is able to process all of these different types of of media rather than having you know individual customized ones yeah so that makes me think that you can actually get really specialized hardware for this that specializes in transformers rather than kind of putting them on top of gpus is is that something that you've heard of people doing or like does everything reduce down to like gpus because they they don't you're just pushing stuff in parallel to, yeah, to this hardware uh the folks at google have these uh, specialized hardware called tpus they're called uh, tensor processing units that are a little bit more specialized than gpus in that they excel at very fast matrix multiplication which yeah. uh, which is what transformers are based on uh, i think beyond that uh, everything just re- reduces down to matrix multiplication so i don't see that there's a huge transformer specific hardware that is is necessary but maybe i don't know Mm. okay yeah yeah Yeah, so so that's that's one big thing and i think the the other big thing is that these are like i mentioned incredibly computationally efficient and what it means is that you can train transformer-based models on huge huge amounts of data that you take from the web that you take from you know, driving self-driving cars around and collecting recordings and things like that. And the nice thing is that in the case of the research com- research community, you can train a large model once and then release it to fine-tune. And so now, unlike previously, the NLP community is not constantly training their own models for every individual type of task, uh-huh. like we said. And so yeah. rather, they're able to build on top of each other. And so this is why... For example, in the case of GPT-3, people are, are very rarely now building you know, customized NLP models that are classifying sentiment or something and then collecting huge amounts of data and then training you know, sentiment classifier mm-hmm. that says, is this review positive or negative? Now that GPT-3 has sort of slurped up all of the text on the web, you can simply ask GPT-3 and use, you know, like we said, use prompt engineering to, to get GPT-3 to output 
just using its normal generative cap capabilities. And so this is a, a new area of research called zero-shot learning. There's a paper coming out of that came out of Stanford AI where they describe these types of models as foundation models, meaning mm -hmm. that everybody uses them. And there are a lot of sort of ethical implications where if these foundation models are found to have biases and things like mm -hmm. that, then it biases the output of everybody who uses them. So it's kind of like an open source now in that way where uh, yeah. you have this dependency risk. If the thing that you depend on has some security vulnerability, let's say, then that now your application has security vulnerability. Similarly, if there's uh, some kind of problem in these foundation models, it, it affects you know all of the downstream users. And so there's a lot of research on that. So, so mm -hmm. those are some of the risks. But overall, I think that it lends to reuse and uh, it makes it so that this kind of power is democratized rather than having it be only available to those who have a ton of data to train on. Well, I am surprised, I guess, that that it's deep learning is in the state that it is now because I think it, it was hard for me to imagine how they were going to get it to compose with each other or like how they were going to make progress after a certain amount because it seemed like all the advances have been slurped up by CNNs and then they were plateauing. And so good thing for that attention paper, I guess, however they got the inspiration for it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think overall, you know, the the improvements of the the transformer have been huge in NLP and like we sort of alluded, they are now eating up some of the gains in in computer vision again because transformers they don't care whether something is an image you because mm -hmm. they don't care about the structure of the input and so transformers are increasingly replacing CNNs. There are papers coming out showing that vision transformers are are now reaching state of the art on a lot of the computer vision metrics as well. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we're in this new world where maybe, I don't know, it, it's actually hard for me to say, is there something that will beat the transformer? I mean, probably, but I think for now, I think we should sort of bask in this renaissance of, <laughs> of you know, everything being sort of mutually compatible, having uh, this sort of free trade of information between the, these different uh, disciplines. Yeah, that's pretty exciting because usually in different uh, fields, you get two or three different theories that seem incompatible with each other i mean uh, in physics it's it's one typical one where they're looking for a grand unified theory and in programming there's you know people like imperative functional and relational and you know they're not exactly unified in 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 a concrete way so it's pretty exciting that people in machine learning have found like a unifying representation to to machine learning i guess yeah exactly so you know, that's that's sort of all of the stuff that's grounded in reality. I think we covered all of the history and the theory and some of the state of the art. And so now I'm excited for our favorite part, which is <laughs> right. we say, well, the, you know, we all this stuff exists. What does it mean? What can we do with this? Like, what does it mean for the world? And, and yeah. so, yeah, upon hearing all of this stuff, you know, what right. do you think? <laughs> yeah, I, I had to think about this for a little bit. Like, what does it mean in a world where transformers are prevalent? And I think the knowledge about transformers have yet to filter out to other tech communities in general. And so I think it's a little slow on the upshot. But one of the things that I thought about was whether it could be used for compilers. Because with compilers and uh, interpreters, you don't you don't convert directly down to machine code anymore. Usually there's some sort of like intermediate representation or IR that you're converting your code into before it can be compiled down to bytecode of the various machines or virtual machines that you want to target. And so 
people have IRs in compilers, the same reason why you have Docker or internet protocol like IP and same thing with transformers. And so something it's so that you have a narrow waste basically. So you don't have to write all different combinations of, of N to M. And so what embeddings really reminded me of was that it was an abstracted space of meaning. Like you have some sort of like vector representation of meaning in space and it's spatially related to everything else. So if, two things were close in meaning, they were close in that embedding vector space. And so it made me wonder if embeddings could be used as an intermediate representation of some sorts between like programming languages so that you could generate bytecode for different virtual machines that you wanted to target. Like it seems like it's possible, but I'm hand-waving because like, <laughs> because, because yeah. like people have, well, what's that thing that, that people are using to generate code inside of VS GitHub, Code? GitHub Copilot? Yeah, yeah, Copilot, and and so if that's possible, you should be able to generate bytecode with it. That doesn't seem too far fetched. Yeah, I think that that could be interesting because there are a lot of languages that, for example, haven't yet been translated to the JVM or something or or Wasm. At this point, actually, a lot of languages have been translated to those, but you know that takes a lot of manual effort. And so, yeah, maybe I wonder if there's a way to frame this as a translation problem where on one side, your input is in the language of, you know, some programming language, and then your output is the output of, you know, your target platform, let's say Wasm, and then you train a a language model, or, or based on transformers that knows how to to convert one to the other. And the nice thing is that you basically have infinite training data because you can just take all of the source code that that somebody wrote let's say, in a language that does have a Wasm target, so like, let's say, Rust, and then you can actually just run the Rust to Wasm compiler and compile it to Wasm, and then yeah. you feed that as training data into this machine learning yeah. model, and then your job is to fine-tune maybe a, a small subset of your own language and then see if it can basically make use of all the things it learned from the, the other language's compiler and somehow translate it uh, and benefit the compiler that you're trying to write. Yeah, and so that seems perfectly feasible. Also, another thing is that dream of uh, being able to write in whatever language you want within a company. So maybe if all compilers compiled to these common embeddings, then it doesn't really matter. Like in a single code base, even in a single file, you can just write different languages. As long as it's like fenced off, this part is PHP, this part is Ruby or something like that, then yeah. perhaps that, that seems entirely possible. It'd be a giant mess organizationally, but but that seems entirely possible. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think so that well, you don't need FFIs anymore if if everything can be converted into embeddings. Maybe like so. Anyways, you're oh saying... interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean that's that's a, a sort of next level because I was thinking that you use the transformer model to target, you know, some some machine language or some other intermediate representation, such as you know the Wasm runtimes representation or something like that but yeah, you're no. saying even like let's just forget the wasm runtime <laughs> like, you, yeah let's, no let's yeah, just you run don't... code based on like the embeddings of a particular yeah um, yeah yeah yeah, yeah, thing. yeah because would... like you don't need the intermediate representation written by humans anymore it's just like, whatever it is just write it into the embedding and then you can like design whatever hardware you want and then be able to convert whatever that embedding is to the bytecode for that particular machine, whether it's virtual or not. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, now that we're we're in the, completely in the realm of speculation, there are this idea of 
what are called neural Turing machines. And the neural Turing machines are this idea that you you represent the sort of memory structure of you know a Turing machine, like a oh. theoretical computer, basically using matrices and vectors and things like that. And so rather than having direct memory look up to a particular address, you use this machine learning model and attention and things like this in order to look up data in a matrix. And so I wonder if, forget the whole computer itself, like what if you compiled uh, a language down to these you know, embeddings, these runtime embeddings, and then you made an architecture and combine it with a neural Turing machine and you just have a, comp- a computer that just runs on matrices and, and vectors and embeddings and things like that. Yeah, that so so, th- so this is what I was asking you about earlier with like, like could you have specialized hardware for this stuff? I think this is this is where I was kind of getting to. Instead of like everything being on the von Neumann architecture, like could we do this sort of thing? Actually, there's a paper for those of you interested, like can programming be liberated from the von Neumann architecture? And in it, Bacchus of like the BNF, like Bacchus Noir form, the, that guy, mm-hmm. he was lamenting the fact that like back in 1978 or something like that, that like programming languages are just, just suck hard and like didn't have enough mathematical guarantees and not enough efficiency because of the von Neumann architecture. Like you have a CPU on one hand and like a whole bunch of memory and you're just shuttling like these mm-hmm. words back and forth along a l- really narrow pipe. And most of those words have nothing to do with the uh, data itself, but mostly the names of data. And so you're just shuttling back and forth. And so instead, if you could construct like a different kind of hardware that was more conducive to say functional programming, because it in, in, in co- like the hardware itself dealt with the mechanism of functional programming directly then could you gain efficiencies? And like I haven't really looked into it, but apparently some people att- attempted to build Lisp machines, which are like hardware that is very catered to running Lisp. And mm-hmm. so I think this is going back to our Alan Kay episode, which is that quote that he had about people that want to really uh, write software would make their own hardware. And this is what he's talking about with you get that virtuous loop where you write applications and software have a platform and that informs the hardware that you should build which then makes your software easier. But instead, we fell into this world where we just made the old architecture faster and faster yeah. to the point where, like, it, yeah, like the soft, it's, it's at a point where we basically just have the same von Neumann architecture from the very beginning. And that's kind of gotten so fast that it's subsumed every other design that could have been possible given what we understand about software today. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is probably an interesting area of research that people are probably exploring because the database community is using different types of machine learning to optimize queries mm-hmm. and and improve the efficiency of database systems. Yeah. And so, yeah, there could be some room there. There's a lot of interest in sort of machine learning for systems where, I don't know if it's exactly along the lines of what you're saying, of actually just exiting from the von Neumann architecture and then using, you know, matrix multiplication all the way down. But yeah, I think yeah, that... Like- there is an opportunity, I think, for at least, you know, optimizing uh, a bytecode or doing different types of things and, and maybe putting a, a machine learning model in the loop in order to even do things like maybe, you know, JIT compile code or, or, or something like that. Yeah, it's time to bring Seymour Cray back. I mean, like he's been working on vector machines for those supercomputers and they've only found niche, niche uh, applications while he was around, so... Yeah, go figure. Yeah, so so that that was my my kind of thought of of where these embeddings would 
occur and so before i go further with other speculation what, what about you like where given that you work in the field like where do you see kind of the second and third order effects like what if transformers were pervasive and people can use them on all sorts of like what, what would the world look like yeah i mean i think one thing that's an interesting implication of multimodal uh, architectures is that you could have multimodal training and and you can imagine that you train machine learning models the way that i imagine a baby learns when a baby or a child is going through the world, they see something, they hear it make a sound, they hear somebody say, oh, there's a cat. They, they, they hear the cat meow, they see the cat, they maybe touch the cat. And so they use all their senses in order to get at what a cat is. And they do this all sort of simultaneously, right? It's Without not like labeled data either, right? Yeah, that's right. Without labeled data either. And so... It's not like there's a separate phase where they first learn what cat looks like, then later they only learn what a cat sounds like, and then later they hear somebody say the word cat. It all just happens at once. And so I think it'd be very interesting maybe to see what that would look like for a machine learning model where it takes a multimodal input and processes it it using transformer. And so maybe the machine learning model watches all of the YouTube videos. Maybe it it lives on a robot and uh, that robot navigates through the world and has cameras and sensors and things like that, whatever it might be, and see if it can learn all of its senses at once using a, a shared architecture. And then that shared ar- architecture, the, the sort of embedding cat, captures not just what it looks like, but also what it sounds like, what it, you know, what, all, all the different things that ca- came through all these different senses. I see. Huh. So then what, what would you use it for? I mean, that, that's the kind of the mechanics, but like what, what are some like concrete applications for multimodal? Yeah, I mean, I think there there are many. It's a little bit speculative at this point, but you can well, that's imagine. why we're here. <laughs> that's why we're here, yeah. That's right. No, I mean, I think that one of the interesting things is that let's say that you've taken, you know, all of the web and so you understand sort of words. You can't use your understanding of words now to answer questions necessarily about what's happening in a video because even though you might have two transformer-based architectures, one that is able to process video and one that has learned all of the words in the world, those two are not sort of shared. The knowledge cannot be easily shared between those two. And so Mm -hmm. if you have this sort of multimodal training, then what could happen is that you you could then ask questions about what's happening in this video. What part of this video does the cat jump? And without any sort of labeled data, because it knows you know, the, you've trained an architecture, you've trained a model that has knows about cats, it knows about, it's seen them jumping, all of that. You can basically use language to steer it towards finding answers in videos, in pictures, in other types of things. Oh, so you should be able to query inside of media that traditionally escaped uh, search. Yeah, I see. So, So then this could be applied to all different kinds of media besides images videos and sound like what what other forms like i guess well i guess that covers it all but <laughs> i mean because yeah. we don't have smell vision or anything like that but like <laughs> per se if if like people thought it was really important to encode smells or something like that yeah. you could get it to go either way I, or i i guess there are things in which we typically don't think about being able to generate that we might be able to do and we talk about this in the clips and 
what is it wally episode where you can type in words and then get it to generate a image or a video and so you could presumably type up a script and have the computer generate a movie yeah exactly so i think that there are a lot of potential for generative media i think there's a lot of potential in using transformers actually for music so uh, we didn't touch upon this but uh, there's a lot of interest in applying transformers for generative music and so i can imagine that if you have your really multimodal transformers as well you could even ask questions of music like what are all the songs in the spotify library that have you know fast drums and you know female singer or something like that and uh, you'd be able to kind of query all of those or, or you know like maybe you're trying to find songs for your soundtrack and you can say you know what are all the sort of love songs 80s love songs that have a you know particular type of synth and uh, whatever and and you could do that today if you have these hand labeled datas on every single song in the entire yeah. library but you probably don't want to do that you might no. just want to use you know pre-training and multimodal training in order yeah. to, to solve this problem ain't, ain't nobody got time for that <laughs> wait, wait so then what do you know if the these transform transformer models can learn online or is there like a strict division between training and uh, inference i don't think that there's anything preventing them from learning online i haven't read too much on the literature about that being a thing just because they also need so much data that you you kind of have a distinct training and inference phases but yeah i don't see why you can do this online yeah i guess i was asking in the sense that you could conceivably have a machine, a deep learning transformer model, try to make money by mm. generating things that are make that would make it earn money. So yeah. it could generate art and try to sell them as NFTs, and then based on the feedback of what humans might like, then uh, as part of the training, or maybe like it reads in Twitter as the zeitgeist and that's, it turns it into embeddings and then generates art that it could sell as NFTs and then use those uh, funds as a way to pay for its like server costs. Yeah. Yeah. I think we talked a little bit about this in some previous episode where there was a DAO that was trying to do this, but with humans in the loop where they were trying to use a a generative uh, model similar to Dolly that they feed it in a description of uh, a piece of art it'll generate that they try to mint that as an nft and then they use that as sort of feedback to steer the the model further yeah i mean i don't see any reason why you couldn't just make that end-to-end work and have the machine learning model every week just like use the feedback that it collects to to tweak the you know output or something like yeah that. because like i guess that would venture into like legal status uh, or legal territory like would the machine learning model be able to own property because i guess it, that probably won't happen because people that create these things would want to own whatever like productive thing the machine produces. But I guess I could conceive of self-driving cars as the first non-human citizens in a country in which they earn their own keep, right? Like they would drive people around to their different destinations and then earn money as a result. And maybe if banks won't open account to non-humans because they can't do KYC, maybe people will be willing to give them cryptocurrency. And then the cars would be able to maintain themselves by driving into auto shops and paying in cryptocurrencies whenever they needed upkeep. And so that way it's a self-maintaining cycle where 
they want to upkeep the the car itself and then their you know their training is to just drive people from place to place and then i guess you it, it then if, if that's perpetuating you i can see that going on for decades if not centuries because then the machine would keep replacing its parts and it would be that question of are you still you even if all the parts are replaced and so if we somehow get flying cars in the future maybe like the honda civic of today is some flying car of the future but it's still the same machine learning entity that's running all those parts it's a little bit of a weird thought yeah no i you know it sounds really really far-fetched but it's not too far out of it's, the realm yeah, of... It's yeah, not entirely it? inconceivable given what we know, right? I mean, there's yeah. definitely a lot of forces um, that would be against us, like legal and, you know, like ethical, that sort of stuff. But yeah, it doesn't yeah. seem far-fetched that you should be able to close a loop on this. And same thing with, like, web design. Like, I can imagine machine learning agents that live solely online and their their job is basically a marketing agency, and so people would go to them to design web pages to sell, I don't know, whatever doodaggy. And then they would just generate landing pages for people to look at. Yeah. Yeah, actually. So one of the the sort of killer app demos that people made for GPT-3 that made a huge splash was that somebody made a, a demo where you could type in, like, I want a web, web page with a red background and, you know, button uh, that says yeah. checkout or something. And it would generate, like, a React DOM tree that that would basically match that specific specification and so there was this you know all this hype that is programming over like do we need programmers anymore because now you could just do this like do we need react developers anymore and you know maybe less than we thought we needed yeah yeah so so i think the answer is probably you know no you can't get rid of all of the the react developers but yeah you can probably uh, get by with less than you needed or have some natural language interface that does a lot of what the low-hanging fruit that that people do and yeah like i'm like you mentioned it's a sort of a stone's throw from there to can you have some type of generative model transformer based model for example that generates web pages or and not just web pages maybe it generates the layout of the web page the copy on the web page and then you're able to give it feedback or, or rather than you giving it feedback it's able to observe feedback from you know the the click-through rates and things like that and then tweak its its output so basically doing what a human would be doing a b testing things but it's just doing it itself because it has generative capabilities and it's able to also read the the metrics huh people better earn their <laughs> keep at at fan companies before the good times end i guess i, I guess know. so yeah, yeah i mean programmers aren't going to go away i'm pretty sure of that but probably we might need less than them but then yeah. again like one one of the things that has been on certain program, like thought leader programmers in mind. I guess, for example, Jonathan Blow, he, he probably wouldn't like me calling him a thought leader, but <laughs> like one of the things we worry about is just how complex programming has become and like, are there ways to simplify programming? But maybe with these deep learning models, like we can increasingly generate more and more capable programs and more and more complex programs that then become entirely out of reach of most programmers and so that could also be a possible future yeah yeah i think that one interesting trend that's happening is that these deep learning models and, and specifically transformers are eating the jobs of machine learning re researchers first so it's actually oh, not that they are putting you know you know mcdonald's workers out of a job right, they're actually right. putting machine learning researchers out of a job because like we mentioned 
with zero shot learning, you don't need to hire a machine learning expert who is going to train a classifier that classifies tweets as spam or, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. You can simply get by using prompt engineering. So if you have a foundational model like GPT-3, you can, like we mentioned, engineer your prompts in such a way to elicit the, that model to give you the answer that you want. And so now you don't need as many machine learning jobs, deep learning jobs. And so, yeah, similarly, I think um, with programming, programming might go in a direction such that the the hard part about programming is in the prompt engineering. Can you phrase your problem domain and can you phrase the the specification of your problem in such a way that you can elicit this machine learning model to solve your problem effectively? And that still takes skill, but now you need far fewer people doing that. Huh. Well, and I guess you don't need data cleaning anymore because you don't need to label any of the data or anything like that. Do you still? Yeah, or you maybe need, garbage uh, in, garbage out, so I don't know. Yeah, so with prompt engineering, a lot of the time what you do is you give a few examples. So you say, yeah. you know, a prompt, you know, classify tweet as spam examples. And then you give a few examples, right? Like, here's a tweet, spam. Here's another tweet, not spam. But the thing is that because this thing is a few-shot learner, meaning yeah. that it, it, it doesn't need tons and tons of training data because right. it has learned so much from the internet, right. it, it can basically, with maybe... Five, ten examples at max, get the gist of what you want it to do, and then actually be able to generate for future for future questions that you ask it, yes, this is spam. No, this is not spam. And so, yeah, data cleaning, maybe like maybe not, because you actually don't have a ton of training data that you need to feed a few shot learner. Yeah. Huh. So then so then I guess what are all the well, I guess you don't need to pay machine learning researchers like a million bucks a year anymore. So Yeah, I mean if you're a startup you can actually get access to GPT-3 and be able to build actually quite powerful things without uh, having to hire any machine learning researcher at all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That seems to be true. I, I don't know if that many startups leveraging that though. Is it just that it's unknown or it's that the problems don't quite apply to a lot of things or people just don't know about it yet. I think, uh, I think it's still coming online. OpenAI just opened up access API access to GPT-3 to the general public you know, just a few months ago. And so, yeah, I think that things are going to get even better and better over time. Yeah. I see. Huh. And then I guess for me, I was thinking about how you get machines to talk to each other and maybe transformers would be able to help with that because a lot of times the way that we do it across the web is that we have humans engineer some sort of API and we throw it up there, whether it's REST or GraphQL and then we write a whole bunch of documentation and then some other engineer on the other side then reads this documentation out of band on the other side and then does some implementation. And it's like shit work that nobody ever really wants to do. But yeah. like that's a vast majority of like what we end up having to do. And so I'm wondering if the communicating between two machines that have their own internal schemas and waves of representing data, whether you can communicate not the program itself, but the the data that it has into embeddings so that it can communicate this reliably across the network reliably not in the sense of latency but in the sense of uh, data accuracy to mm -hmm. the other side without having to write an api like that would save hours and hours of of work i have to say like as a web developer i spent a whole so much time just doing integration i've always hated it yeah i think there are a few steps to get there but one thing that is interesting is a callback to 
our previous episode was that we were talking about what if you had self-healing APIs? Because if you change oh, yeah, yeah, some yeah. minor schema between one version and another, then the the computer on the other side says, I don't know what to do with this, even though it might be a very minor transformation, right? You know, like a, a key changes or rather than nesting, yeah. you know, rather than having only one, you know, object, top level uh, object of the response, you, you have a list of objects or something. And so can you make something resilient to that type of transformation? Maybe you can if you use some type of some type of transformer based few shot learner where it what it does is that it it'll take a few tries like it will it'll maybe send a request and then see what the response is and send a few other requests and see what yeah. the response is and then learn okay like this is when i send this thing it sends it in this format and so the things i'm looking for are, are here and this is how i can parse this response and you can basically rather than having to have hard-coded apis you could have a, a few shot learner that just like really quickly learns like how to parse something and then and then use that API. Yeah, yeah. I was reminded of this because of Brett Victor's talk about the future of programming in which he pretended like he was a programmer in the 70s and talked about the state of the art at the time and and basically it's just what we have today and he was just optimistic like surely in the future we won't have like programmers <laughs> on one side implement an API and the programmer on the other side read the API and implement stuff on the other side. And yeah. so it, it was akin to like, how do you solve the problem of us meeting aliens and then finding a way to talk to each other? Because like, that's what a self-healing API would effectively have to do. Yeah. yeah. And I also read this back and forth between Alan Kay and Rich Hickley. Oh, in the, closure. in the 2016 hacker yeah. news thread. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Where they just <laughs> talking past each other completely. And, yeah. and I think Alan Kay's whole thing was, was, this notion that you would be, have to be, uh, be able to build up an understanding of data between two programs that didn't understand each other at all by sending the interpreter across the wire along with the message. And particularly was talking about something else completely different about like how data itself is important and, and that sort of thing. And so I don't think either one of them contemplated that maybe it could be negotiated with transformers. And so I, I've never heard of Alan Kay talk about machine learning at all whatsoever so maybe yeah. it's out of his purview i don't know yeah no i mean i think in the episode where we, we talked about this last time he did mention this idea of alien communication and this thing called linkos yeah and so he doesn't say it directly in uh, in the thread but i there are vague implications that he is interested in machine learning uh, I see. to facilitate something like linkos to bootstrap a communication mechanism between two protocols that are, are two entities that have not agreed upon a protocol and so yeah it, it's interesting and, and you know it doesn't respond it doesn't necessarily pertain to transformers per se but there was this uh this you know research study out of facebook where they they basically had two agents and they learned to communicate with each other and through their own protocol so yeah it could be it could be interesting to see if you can have these these generative models facilitate uh, the communication between the two entities that have not uh, really communicated with each other before provided that they are not encoding things in a completely arbitrary crazy way but rather in a reasonable way that looks like things that you might expect but simply uh, modulo some transformation yeah i i think the thing i would worry about is like the reliability like how would i know that a concept made it over reliably and like i, I don't want like some especially if they're getting no, I mean, either for either reads or writes, like, how do I know that the ch there isn't some misunderstanding? Is there some self-correcting way to do it? I guess that's a research level problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
I mean, I think so. yeah, people are going to have to figure out all those details. And it might not just be, you know, just using transformers. They're probably going to have to use, you know, error correction techniques or, mm. you know, other classical techniques as well. But You're yeah, right. it could be interesting. How big are these models? Is it practical to stick it on each end of a client? It may not be unless they're like servers or something. Yeah, they can scale arbitrarily. So there are versions of of these transformer models like BERT that mm-hmm. can run in, in your web browser as a part of a Chrome extension, but they can also be quite large and it's only feasible to run in a data center. Yeah. So it depends on what level of performance you need. And, you know, so so it might be feasible in some cases. It, it I'm somewhat doubtful that you need a GPT-3 level transformer model to do, you know, something maybe simple like facilitating a small API transformation between machines or something like that. I think that you could get by with something smaller. So, so oh, I think, because yeah, you expect the API things, to, the language to be relatively regular and the data to be regular, whereas like human language tends to have a lot of exceptions and context involved. So yeah, that's that's, that's my intuition for for you know why you might not need the the full power. I yeah. see, I see. Huh? Are, are there like other types of use cases that we haven't really thought of? Uh, well, one thing that came to mind was to generate teachers with these GPT-3 models. Mm. And this is not completely out of the blue, but for those of you that have read The Diamond Age with the young girls and Kyridian, it's basically like this book that adjusts to the reader and she starts off at a young age being to learn how to read. And as she grows older, it teaches her more and more complex concepts. And the way that Neil Stevenson, the author of the book, conceptualized this was that there was an actor or a number of actors and actresses that are behind the characters in the book that teach her stuff, but you could mm-hmm. conceivably have machine learning algorithms that would be able to generate this sort of stuff for you. So, for example, if I want to learn more about, I don't know, quantum mechanics, I would then engineer the prompt to write stuff that helped understand, help me understand the core concepts of quantum computing. And so yeah. maybe that would be a case. And so it could generate not just text, but maybe video or images that go along with it and even code like exploratory code um, that helps me interact with these core concepts and so that seems conceivable in a hand wavy way I don't know what the complexities are involved there and maybe it doesn't generate very good ones because the embedding isn't quite right but I don't know yeah no so I think that that's that's a really really interesting line of thought and and I imagine the reason why you picked quantum computation is a is a reference to the mnemonic medium by Michael Nielsen and yes. Matsuchuk. Yeah. We'll put that in the show notes, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting, right? So how do you make uh, a type of medium where it adapts to you and allows you to learn what you need, maybe realizing that you've forgotten something or you didn't understand something and you say, I didn't understand what you just told me. Can you rephrase it again? Can you show me another resource that will perhaps elucidate it a little bit differently? And I see that there's a very, very huge potential for that because there are transformer models that are being paired with huge repositories of data, for example, the entire corpus of web pages. And they ha- like people are, are researching ways that you can have transformers look up information in external repositories of data. So rather than having these transformer models memorize the entire data during training, you are, are able to steer the model to look up uh, the answers in a third-party source. And actually, Google has a demo called Lambda, L-A-M-D-A, we'll put in the show notes, 
where they have a UI that looks like a chatbot that's powered by a transformer model where you can ask it things like this. So basically, rather than using Google search and you finding all the answers and all the web pages, you're able to ask the chatbot and it's able to pull in the web pages that are appropriate, show you the snippets when appropriate, show you a snippet of a video in response to your question, and basically respond to your query, not just a, as a one-off query, here's a bunch of resources, you go figure it out, but in this iterative way. And so I imagine that a textbook would potentially be similar in that you know, you wire up this chatbot to a textbook, to a lot of different styles of teaching, the same uh, material, you know, resources on the web about that material, and then you're basically able to have a dialogue with it uh, where it, it sort of figures out, okay, well, this is what you need to know. You clearly don't understand this aspect. Let me find a resource and pull it for you and show it to you. Yeah, I wonder how well that would work. Because right now, realistically, even though we have like GPT-3, I can't imagine it working super, super well. I'm not exactly sure what the gap is. Because recently I was like looking at algebraic effects and that led to a rabbit hole about category theory. And honestly, I can't read a lot of this stuff because I don't have the background in it yet. And like a lot of times I was thinking, oh, if only... Because like once you understand mathematical concepts they actually embody a really simple concept it's just that it takes so many words to be precise about it and there's notation for it and so it's hard to look that up sometimes and so if you had gpt3 or something to explain it for you as you're going through it as a way of helping you understand the material that would be very helpful but for some reason my intuition is that it's not quite there yet for something like that but i'm not sure what the gap is my take as somebody who not only works in uh, NLP, but in search specifically, is we're closer than, than you think. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. so I, I actually think in the next couple of years, we're going to start seeing things like this. And yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be framed a lot in the in the language of search, but you, know, you can frame it in the language of a mnemonic medium. And I think that it would uh, actually be a very good match for that problem as well. What gives you the confidence for it? Is it an intuition or there's like some aspect, like what's in your head that's not in mine? One is I've used, I've used early prototypes of something like this oh, and okay. uh, they work really, really well. And yeah, the second is that, again, going back to the transformer, they're multimodal and things like that. I think I'm pretty confident that you could have, you know, a, for example, when, when I was researching uh, this podcast, of course, I was going to the, the first first primary sources, the, the research literature, but I was also yeah. trying to find, you know, can I find an explanation of Transformers that is visual? Uh -huh. Can I find an explanation of Transformers that is for the layperson versus just the, the researchers? And so I think that just being able to index all of the resources about a, a topic and then letting this model figure out how to pull in the resources is, is very feasible. So you can imagine typing to this transformer, can you, can you rephrase this in a layperson's terms? Or can you find me a more, mm, you know, right. simplest version? And have, have Chris Rock teach me about transformers. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that all of those are in the, in the, in the realm of feasibility. It's just a matter of putting them together. A lot of it's going to involve very good engineering, but I don't see anything, any aspect of this that is infeasible. I see. At, at least from a technical standpoint, there may other be other showstoppers, but at least from a theoretical feasibility standpoint, it is hard, not impossible mm -hmm. in, in engineering parlance, I guess. Yeah. I see. Okay. Okay. So, so where do we go from here? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think 
you know, we've covered a, a ton of, of ground on, on the Transformer. I think that one sort of call to action I would uh, encourage people uh, to do is to actually just use uh, a GPT-3. It's, it's open. The, the API is completely uh, open to the public now. And just try out different prompts and do prompt engineering. I think that's going to be a huge, huge component of programming in the future where it won't look like programming, but it'll look like, can we elicit answers from these pre-trained models? And then, yeah, I mean, we'll put a ton of resources in the show notes, but I think that the best way to get a grasp on the power of transformers is actually just to, to use tools that are based on transformers. And I think it's, it's really, really exhilarating to see how good they are. You, you, you really won't expect them to be that good, especially if you haven't used some of these machine learning tools or you haven't touched machine learning in a few years, it, it's really shocking how, how good things have become. Right. So, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am excited for this world that we've, I guess, <laughs> this cockamamie world that we've <laughs> pulled out of our heads. So then I guess, do you, do you have any like closing remarks on the world that we're headed? Is it, I guess like the, the thing that I see if like all goes well is that, a lot of things that we previously thought were out of reach of our computational tools are going to be within reach because we typically think of images and video and like other forms or even generating code as being inscrutable to code itself and so or machines themselves and that's all going to open up and that means that we can do translations from one medium to another whether it's image code web pages even like self-driving or even like i don't know like process optimization that sort of thing and so you might end up having these entities run significant portions of our world which i guess is is one thing that we're going to see and so i guess people losing their jobs is probably going to be perhaps the least of our concerns but like these (laughs) things are going to be shaping our world in ways that would make the flash boys where the seem like quaint where you know like algorithms are shaping like whether we have a straight line for fiber optics between chicago and new york right like that that sort of stuff will will seem quaint yeah yeah no i think it's it's definitely going to be pretty crazy i think that you know again these these models are multimodal and so if even if you don't work in a problem domain that involves text or that involves images if you're working with graphs you're working with asts you're working with 3d point clouds and 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 3d models all kinds of things are fair game with transformers and the interesting thing is that you can use text increasingly to steer these transformers so Mm. you can imagine having a generative transformer that generates you know 3d models for games and yeah or rather than themselves yeah, yeah, that, rather than, than building the games, that builds the games themselves, and, and the way that you control it is by saying, can you make it more like this, or can you make it more like that? And, and so, you know, we went into that a lot with the DALI and creative collaboration, but yeah, I mean, I think that to be prepared for this new world, I think that a lot of the things that we used to think computers couldn't do, they can increasingly do. And so my other call to action is, once you've convinced yourself with using some of these demos of the power of some of these models, really try to imagine how you can apply it to whatever domain, even if you're not a machine learning practitioner, how how can you apply this to whatever you, you work in? Because whatever field you work in, you have some type of data, you're manipulating some type of data. And so 
it's entirely conceivable that a, a transformer can be fitted to solving the problems that you have today. Yeah, it's it's kind of the same problem that Zapier has. People understand what it is, but they're like, I don't have any examples in my head, and so like I need to go look at some examples. So yeah, like when you're playing around with GPT-3, check out some of the examples that they have to help your creative juices come. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, obviously you can tell I'm super excited. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> how are you feeling? I think this is one of those things where it both excites me and terrifies me, because I, I can imagine a world in which it gets strange really fast, especially like the things that I talk about where these machine learning models earn their own keep and they might be the proto versions of things that live for a while and and so that that sort of thing is weird and you could have things that govern not just cars but an entire city or a nation state perhaps so that that is weird yeah it's definitely something gonna be a weird weird world as uh sure these things can increasingly do things that we thought only humans could do yeah so with that this has been Shri and this is Will thanks for listening to another episode of the Technium we'll be back uh, next week for uh, yet another episode that goes into the edge of technology make sure to like comment and subscribe we actually got oh. our first uh, comment the other yes, day and exactly. uh, very very interesting content there so, so we'd love to hear more from you and again thanks for watching yep take care I'll see you next week bye bye